For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Hello you. What's been happening? As you probably know, I travel internationally loads and I'm usually thinking globally. I interview people from the UK, where I'm from, in Europe, because lots of big fashion companies pushing sustainability are based there. The States, of course. Last week's guest was Michael Praiseman, founder of Everlane. Did you listen to that one yet? But lately, I've been feeling like the universe is pushing me to focus on the local. Today's guest is Joost Bakker. Born in Amsterdam, he moved to country Victoria when he was nine, and it's there that he tests his most original, intriguing ideas about zero waste and how we might reimagine the built environment and grow food where we live. He started out as a florist, but Joost is a multidisciplinarian. He's an architect, a designer, he works with food, he's run restaurants, he's designed sculptures and houses. He's globally recognised the New York Times calls him the poster boy for zero waste living. But fundamentally, Yost is about fostering the local and that sense of place that allows us to connect with the land around us. I interviewed him in Melbourne. We're at this store opening for the fashion brand Country Road. It's really interesting stuff. Their new retail space is the first to be certified five-star green star rating by the Green Building Council of Australia. It's also in a shopping centre, Chadston, which blew my mind. I mean, the stuff you can do. I admit, I knew absolutely nothing about this, but I'm fully off down the rabbit hole. Because why stop at sustainable product when you can make the space it's sold in greener too? Part of this whole Green Star business is about energy efficiency and waste management and LED lighting, all the stuff that happens behind the scenes. But what I loved was the stuff you could actually see. So... Amazing use of recycled materials, bringing the outside in. Uh, What did they do? They had this floor that was an old parquet floor from an old building. They'd used recycled wool in the change room curtains. And one wool was made from recycled magazines. Although you'd never know it. It just looks like textured board. They've also got these counters that look like marble. But actually, they were made from recycled yoghurt pots. Amazing. If you're interested, the architects are Londoners. They're called HMKM and they work with Selfridges and Galleries Lafayette. Anyway, from Melbourne, I went zipping around Victoria, meeting the locals. (laughs) I spoke at Bendigo Writers Festival about activism, and I figured out this intro on the drive back from nearby Ballarat. Now, I mentioned that because it was so cool, I thought you'd be interested. I was invited by the local council there that deals with rubbish collection and recycling, 
And right now in Australia, there's lots of controversy because China has stopped accepting our exported rubbish for recycling and the system is under giant strain. And then this big private operative went bust and there's stockpiles of recyclable rubbish everywhere. Councils are being left with no choice but to landfill some of it. Anyway, this group decided that one solution would be to encourage people to reduce and rethink what they consume. They put on this amazing event. It was packed with locals of all different ages and there was an upcycled fashion show. They were doing mending workshops. It was awesome. And it made me really think about the power of local communities to make change where they are. All this feels really linked to what Yost and I discussed. The ideas around reconnecting and rethinking and making the most of what you have. Yost is like absolutely cranky about waste. He thinks we shouldn't have it at all. And I would agree with him. I reckon you're going to want to share this interview. There's lots to think about in it. And please do let me know what you think and also what you do to get involved with zero waste. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And you can find Yost on Instagram. His name is spelt J-O-O-S-T-B-A-K-K-E-R. And don't forget to check the show notes on clairepress.com for all the extra reading and links to what we talk about. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast, Yoast Backer. We're recording this after an event we've just been talking at. Yeah, it's been good. I smell like wattle. <laughs> we were surrounded by all this incredible flora from your farm. Yeah, it was uh, the timing of this opening was perfect. Last week I was looking at all the different wattles and thinking it's not going to make it. And then the last two or three days it's just all popped. For listeners outside of Australia, what even is a wattle? It's an acacia. It's actually a nitrogen-fixing plant that's unique to Australia, and it's now used across the world. Yellow. Bright yellow, fluorescent yellow. It's like beacons of light in the forest. And what often happens after a bushfire in Australia, wattles, the seeds germinate, they fix lots of nitrogen into the soil, and then the big eucalypts get started, and they pick up on the nutrients that the wattles have used, and the wattles die off. And so they form part of the natural landscape. We're going to get into lots more stuff around flowers and plants. But first of all, a proper introduction. Artist, florist, inventor, architect, builder, list goes on, designer, restaurateur, eco-entrepreneur and sustainability innovator. How's that for a job description? Wow. <laughs> Recognise that guy? <laughs> Which of those words do you relate to most strongly? Artist is probably something that best reflects what I do. I just, I have a creative flair and I actually I heard you say in an interview that you weren't a brilliant entrepreneur because you never think about money I know it's just not I've had people try and go into business with me and it's just like as soon as the ideas resolved I move on well you don't is, really care if you're making money out of it you just want to invent new processes and yeah, rock yeah. the system right yep it just makes life a lot easier and it also means that people naturally collaborate with you when money becomes part of the equation it just becomes a problem Suddenly it's about IP and, you know, and when I work with organisations like the CSIRO, which is the Australian uh, science body, it just, it's such an easy fit because we just do this deal where all the IP that we create is open source. So it just means that it's so, so easy to collaborate with people. We're going to talk about how much system knocking you do, Yoast, but I want to begin with flowers. We started talking about flowers and the arrangement that you made today. Part of that job description was florist. You farm flowers or you grew up on a flower farm, right? Yeah. Everyone loves flowers, obviously, but I've only recently learned how unsustainable they can be. And I mean, wrapped in plastic, obviously, but imported. Yeah, it's now nudging 80% of 
flowers sold in Australia. And the problem is there's no labeling. So when you buy an orange or you buy an apple or a cauliflower, it has to be labeled country of origin. Flowers, there's no laws around that. So people just don't know. I found this article. It's from the Washington Post. It's a couple of years old, but I think it's so fascinating and horrible. It's from Mother's Day. And the title was, Flowers might be nice for mum, but they're terrible for Mother Earth. And it begins, I'm going to read it out. How's this as a gesture of love for the woman who bore you? Chop off the reproductive organ of a plant, send it to her in a box tied up with a bow. The truth is that most flowers are organic only in the truest sense of the word in that they're highly perishable and thus susceptible to decay. And then this is an American start up to 80% of the 5.6 billion stems of flowers sold in the United States each year are imported. And then this story goes on to say that in the States, a lot of those imports come from Colombia and Ecuador. What are the impacts on the environment of that system? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. Growing flowers is labour-intensive, whereas labour-cheap. And the sad thing is... Oh, we say that in fashion too. It's the same. It's exactly the same thing. And what frustrates me as well is that it's a system. So people demand to have roses every week. They demand to have tulips every week. And uh, I was taught by my parents, seasonality is beautiful, right? Like wattles are flowering now. Next week, I won't be using wattles anymore. Last week, I used Daphne. The weeks before that, I used quince blossom. It's the first blossom. Before that, it was apricot blossom. You know, so I've got over a thousand different species of plants on my farm. I've only got a six acre farm, got a hundred chickens. So we produce eggs and the chickens get moved in amongst the flowers. And um, we've got this incredible property that is more biodiverse because there's just so much going on. And every single week, year round, I produce something new. So I don't get bored. I'd get excited. It's busy. And you're deeply connected, obviously, to your land because you're living and working on it. But also that idea of seasonality. I think we recognise it in food that we feel more connected when we know this peach was grown during peach season. It hasn't just come out of cold storage. Yeah, but also all that energy that goes into trying to get something just that little bit earlier or that little bit later, you know, uh, Mm. big deal. Um, I mean, this is a fashion podcast and we've started talking about flowers, but actually the fashion industry is obsessed with flowers. Think about all those grand couture shows like Dior where it's walls and walls of flowers. Our industry loves an exotic flower, a flown-in flower and a huge display. But it's primal. Of course we love flowers. It's a primal thing. When you see a beautiful flower, you're drawn to it. It's like a bee, you know. It's no different. And so it's just an industry that has really, like fashion, abused that situation Mm. and taken it to a whole other level. And that people find that quite shocking. I feel a bit like, oh, God, another thing we can't enjoy. Well, I believe we can. But hang on, I want to look at where you find beauty because a lot of your work is about focusing not just on the obvious, the petals or whatever, but also on the roots and on the decay. So 25 years ago when I started in Melbourne, Australia, there was lots of flowers that were being used year-round. There wasn't really a lot of change and I just felt that there wasn't enough awareness of seasonality. So I started doing installations with foliage and, you know, sometimes it'd be vases with not one single flower because the stems or when trees have lost their leaves. I was, as a young kid, my grade one teacher said to my mum, your son's highly creative. It would be a good idea to maybe connect with one of the local landscape painters and just have him sit in one afternoon a week. So every Wednesday afternoon, she convinced Jan Holleberg, a Dutch uh, landscape painter, that it was a good idea to have me with him. So for four or five years, I spent every Wednesday afternoon with him and he taught me how to use charcoal, how to sketch, how to use watercolours and eventually oils. And What did your mum do to think that through? 
Well, she it was an really, herself? Yeah, yeah, she is. And, um, but that made me understand and appreciate shade, light, the changes in the seasons. And so I can't drive past the even if it's a dead tree. I see things, I think, with a different eye. Mm. And so I just started dragging this stuff into Melbourne's restaurants. And in the late 90s, there were liquor licence laws changed and suddenly – Melbourne was one of the most dynamic places. We had hundreds of small bars opening and, you know, there was just this – it was like uh, from an artist's point of view, I could just get incredibly creative. And so, like, I'd create installations like Quince Blossom that was inserted into used surgical gloves that had the same tint of pink that I'd found. So I'd always go through rubbish bins looking for rubbish, you know, try and – usually – try and find a colour match for whatever it was that I was using. What attracted you to the rubbish? Was it about trying to find the unexpected? Were you thinking about upcycling? Were you thinking about Absolutely. fighting waste or not? I just, I've always loved waste and I've always loved, you know, the beauty of it and just never understood why we generate waste in the first place. And so I cre- started creating art out of it. Then I, had an ex- I was invited to have an exhibition, so I started having solo shows. Again, this is in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it just went from there. And suddenly people were, you know, I remember selling... My dad saying, I can't believe you just sold a sculpture for $10,000 made from waste. And, I can't uh, believe it either. <laughs> but, you know, to the obviously people that were buying this stuff thought it was cool. It wasn't – this is before people really thought about zero waste. And I remember saying to a journalist in 2008, zero waste. And she said, well, that's just not possible. And I asked her to name anything. And so she just started throwing stuff at me. And for everything, I had a solution. And she's gone, maybe it is possible. So, you know, it – we can just copy nature and do what nature does. And what I do differently to what most people do is I don't try and find a use for the waste. I just take a few steps back and look at the system. And if the system's generating something that is of no use to anyone or becomes a problem, well, then the system is at fault. We shouldn't be spending all this energy and time trying to find a solution for the end result. We should just change the system. And that's kind of what I've done with flowers. It's what I've done with buildings. I just find it unbelievable that we build buildings all over the world and have no not thinking about the consequence it might the building might not be demolished for 50 years but 50 years is nothing why can't we design stuff that can be reused upcycled reused endlessly recycled circular a lot of what you do is extremely beautiful but it's also provocative i'm thinking about the time that in october 2018 you and some mates installed how many Thirty-five thousand tulips in melbourne cbd yeah gorgeous but why well, again, supposedly they weren't up to standard. So my brother said, well, I'm going to throw them out. What, so they weren't able to be delivered because, what, they didn't open they, in they time had, or something? No, so the flower stayed stuck in the leaf. So at the juvenile stage when florists buy them, the flower is still quite low in the bunch and then tulips grow. So by the time you buy them, they've grown possibly five centimetres from when my brother might sell them. And, of course, I don't use tulips that way because I don't have plastic, so I just get crates of bulbs, and I've done this for a long time. I don't, never buy tulips in, wrapped in plastic bags. So for me, it was like, are you serious? These tulips are stunning. Have a look at, you know, in the restaurants, and, you know, I'd hang them, and people went crazy for these tulips. I could never get my head around why they weren't up to scratch, and I said to my brother, don't throw them out. I'll find a spot for them. So one morning, we went with three trucks and put them down <laughs> Hosier Lane. You have a Bonza Aussie accent and have been here since you were nine, but tulips are, of course, a Dutch thing. Well, actually, they're Turkish. 
Actually, I read this. You know what? Well, they actually grow wild in Japan, this. Iran, all Why through the Himalayas. Well, somebody brought them to Amsterdam. Actually, I think it was uh, Eindhoven. And the painters saw them flowering in the garden, only a few, and painted them. And, and it became this... It was at a time when Holland was just going crazy. It was the golden age. And um, it just Dutch became... master's era. Yeah, yeah. And it became the must-have. The ironic thing is that the, the most famous tulips were the ones with the stripes. You know, the very famous ones. It wasn't until 250 years later that they worked out that what causes a stripe is a disease. <laughs> no. And it actually killed them. So people were paying the value of a house for one bulb to get the striped tulip. And the gardeners were getting the sack because you've lost these valuable bulbs, but it wasn't until 250 years later that it worked out it was a virus that caused that stripe. Crack up. Okay, where did you grow up? I grew up in a tiny little uh, town called Rustenburg, which is uh, right near Alkmaar in uh, the north of Holland. It's almost like an island. It was a town surrounded by water. So there was a water in front of our house, behind our house, and... In the middle of what many say is the most productive land in the world. Right, so I read this story that was from National Geographic, I think it was last year, and there was a quote in it which was ostensibly what the government had set as a target for the next 20 years, and it is grow twice as much food using half as many resources, and they do loads of sustainable things like reducing water and fertilisers, right? They do, yeah. I mean, they say that if the Dutch were to have an organic diet, Holland would be able to grow enough food for 60 million people. But I did then read some backlash that was like, but it doesn't taste good. <laughs> the Dutch food, well, it's highly intensive. Uh, I mean, they grow incredibly intensive and it is incredibly destructive because they grow a lot of it hydroponically. There's a lot of waste generated in that system. But there's huge pressure in Holland to change that. And there are some companies that are leading, like with everything, it's changing. Obviously, you were nine when you left, so you weren't thinking about the food system. I should say, the reason why we left was because my dad had visited, my mum and dad had visited Australia and New Zealand and fell in love with how clean, wild and open it was. And Holland at that time was not a nice place to be. There was acid rain, you know, defoliating of the forests from the acid rain coming from Russia and uh, Germany. The rivers were really badly polluted, so fish were dying. It was not... A nice place to be and of course industry was growing and uh dad just decided i've got to get out and when we went, went back in 87 it was actually worse and then when i went back for six months in 93 it was like what's happened here it just got so bad this is what gives me hope for where we are now but at holland people just had enough and they want to change. They banned spraying of roadsides, canal sides. They banned a whole series of chemicals. The environment became number one. And it just showed that in as little as five years, nature recovered, birds came back, frog species started returning. And uh, the rivers, you know, when I, you wouldn't even want to swim in 1982. There's a huge canal in front. Go there now, and in summer, there's kids swimming all along oh, really? the canals, and they've completely cleaned them up. When you were a kid and you arrived here, I've heard you say before how astounded you were by the towering trees here and the size and scale of nature. Yeah, the first day is just still like yesterday for me, and seeing those mountain ash, and you know, the Sherbrooke Forest is right next to where we live, really, and that's the world's first national park, it was protected in 1868, 10 years before I Yellowstone. I don't know this. And, um, Terrific. Yeah, yeah. And the world's tallest tree was not far from where we live. It was 136 metres tall. Oh, they my goodness. Sadly cut it down. But we've got Who, some of the why, most... why, why? Did it die? 
No, no, in the 1920s and 30s it was like, let's just cut everything down. They cut a bit it like down to build a bloody table out of it. Oh, I think God. they cut it down and to stand on top of it for a photo, you know, that's what you did. But there's still lots of very old trees left and because that area was protected, what another great story is that in the 1890s there was a mini depression in Australia because we went through the gold rush and Melbourne was the richest city in the world and suddenly things went bad, gold price went down, the government said, let's open up this protected forest and if you log it, you can have it and it's your land, you know. So thousands of people protested in front of Parliament House. You teach me all this history, I have no idea. And the government locked Could up... Could you write an eco-history of Australia? <laughs> Go on, that'd be awesome. But it's not amazing that 100 plus years ago people cared, you know, because people would go for weekends and go through walks of these ancient forests that haven't changed. You know, they're de- so dense with ferns and they're also the most carbon-rich forests in the world. And that's because the mountain ash can get huge, but they don't have a huge canopy, so they allow lots of light in. So you've got things like acacias, wattles underneath, lots of ferns. So unlike when you walk through, I've walked through forests all over the world, but when you walk through like the Amazon, it's very dark. There's actually not a lot on the ground because the light just can't get through. So what's unique about the Southern Australian forests is that um, the World Wildlife Fund funded a study that um, showed that they're three times more carbon dense than the Amazon on average, the Get forest. out. You're giving mm. me an education. This is fascinating. Yeah, I'll forward you the study. It's, it was mind-blowing. We'll and, share a link. Yeah. And so I just fell in love with the place. And, you know, coming from a flat country that was really man-made, I mean, where I was was sea, you know, that was drained 300 years ago. And coming to this wild place with windy roads and incredible uh, diversity, and not only diversity from a plant point of view, but diversity from a immigration point of view. So I went to school with Italian kids, Croatian kids, Vietnamese. Australia, Melbourne is just a melting pot of so many cultures. Could you describe where you live? So I now live about an hour outside of Melbourne in what's regarded as the most uh, productive land in Australia, where most of Australia's flowers are grown and most of Australia's cherries and plums and strawberries and raspberries. It's called Monbolk, and it's the Dandenong Range is right on the edge of the Yarra Valley. I've seen pictures of your house, even though I've never visited, and I happen to know that it's covered in how many? Like strawberries, thousands of yeah, tiny yeah. terracotta pots of strawberries. Yeah, that actually, uh, that creation, the vertical garden, is now more than twenty years old. But my brothers were concreting, and there was some concrete mesh left over. And I love terracotta pots. I love especially the really old, aged ones. So I'm always collecting them when I see them. And I needed to create a, a wall backdrop. And so I just looked at the material and welded two sheets of Rio mesh ten, uh, 13 centimetres apart so that the pot could hang in it. The vertical garden is now probably the most ubiquitous Yoast design all over the world. I think we sold over 20,000 square metres of it. It's in everything from the Google head office to houses in Spain. And, you know, I'm really proud of that because it means that there's thousands of people surrounded by plants because of this simple design. What's it look like? Well, there's terracotta pots that sit locked in a Rio grid mesh, but the plants are in soil. So it's not a vertical garden that is some kind of substrate from out of Mars. It's soil. So the plants are soil-based. And I think this is really important because we need to have more soil in our lives. And um, yeah, so that vertical garden wraps around my house and uh, it's quite amazing in summer when they're all... We can't eat all of them it's impossible so we have lots of birds the dogs my dogs eat the bottom meter my kids eat the middle <laughs> bit and 
you know, the birds eat the top bit. So your big thing is that we ought to be able to grow all of our food where we live and you prove that in your house and then at various restaurants. Growing up in Holland in an area that was incredibly fertile, in the soil, which was below sea, there's lots of shells. So I'd go with my dad to his veggie patch, which is on the other side of the canal, and I'd collect shells, pipes, bits of glass, bits of delfware. And I said to dad one day, how come all this stuff is in the soil? And my dad said, well, you can't just keep pulling plants out of soil. You've got to put back in what you take. And farmers two, three hundred years ago would go into the cities and shovel the manure out of the city streets and spread it across their land. That's why there's so much glass. manure? No, human human manure, everything, to bring fertility back to the soil. That was maybe when I was three or four years old. So I've always understood that you can't just keep taking from the soil. And I just find it... For me, it's so obvious that we, our problem today is that we are not properly nourished. The fact that we suffer tooth decay, that we suffer depression, we don't have enough resources in our body to fight cancer, we are not properly nourished. And that's obvious, right? You can't keep taking. We've mined all the minerals from the soil. And the reason why we've been able to get away with that is because of the invention, the Haber-Bosch invention, which is the creation of synthetic fertilizer out of natural gas. That only provides three elements. The three major elements that plants need to grow, massive yields. So we've got world record yields every year. We just keep pumping this gas-based fertilizer on our soils. But what about manganese, iron, selenium, all the micro elements that we're missing, copper? Those things aren't in synthetic fertilizer. That's the reason why we I think suffer the way we suffer and that's why I think that the only way forward is to create a food system where we generate our waste which does contain all those nutrients. It was at least 10 years, I'm sure more, but at least 10 years ago when you started working on the greenhouse in Melbourne and you were using this language around zero waste and no one knew what you're talking about and everyone's like, what is that? I feel like you're a man whose ideas happened before the zeitgeist because you've been obsessed with soil for all this time and of course there are other people who are but right now as we record this podcast we're in a moment where land use and soil is center stage in all conversations about climate and I'm just going to refer to the latest IPCC report about climate and land use it feels like suddenly everyone's recognizing that the food system is also a massive part of our climate problem the food system is the problem I just get so frustrated that Everyone from Greenpeace to all these organisations are not focusing on what the problem is. The problem is our food system. We've got to get serious about this. Flying aeroplanes and driving cars is not where the problem lies. Well, it is kind of. (laughs) Well, it is kind of, but we're talking about, like, if you want to really change, you know, the World Bank in 2008 identified that close to 60% of all the world's emissions are because of the food that we Mm -hmm. eat. The logging, the land clearing that's going on, the and the land clearing is going on, I've been to South America. It's because the soils are depleted. They clear, they plant crops. After the crops, after there's no longer enough food in they the soil on. for crops, they put cattle on there. And then guess what? They need more. The system is so completely fucked up that we've, got to, we've just got to drastically change it. And we've got a perfect fertilizer that we gen- each and every one of us generates right where we live. Yet it's we're spending- urine time. <laughs> Yeah, and we're we going to get onto this. It's just a no-brainer for me. It's like, what? And why do we spend billions of dollars treating sewage and building these incredible systems to deal with it when we can just deal with it where we live and grow food where we live? So, hang on. For listeners who don't know about your obsession with we, you have 
trialled and successfully used human urine to fertilise a closed system with one of your restaurants. Do you do it at home? Yes. I mean, at home it's different because I've got a tank in the ground that's filled with worms and everything goes back onto the orchard and stuff. So that's a closed system, which I know that most, you know, if you live in a suburb, you can't have one of those systems. Urine contains between 70 and 75% of the nutrients that leave our body. And Justus von Liebig was a, a German scientist who in 1840 came up with law of the minimum or Liebig's law. And he proved that it's not the amount of nutrients that you put on a crop. It's if one tiny little element is lacking, that plant cannot be nourished properly, which means that the people or the animals that eat that plant lack nourishing. He also identified the mining of soils and he kept saying, to be nourished properly, you need to be nourished completely. And so you might only need one microgram of manganese or copper, but if that's lacking, guess where those micro elements usually are in fat. That's why human beings are obsessed with fat because we're not getting nourished properly. Our brain's telling us we need fatty food because we're lacking something. And it's so obvious to me. It's like the only truly practical solution forward is to grow food where you live. But not only that, you have this massive benefit of being surrounded by food. We've been in our food system for 99.9% of our time. It's only in the last 100 years that we've experimented with this idea of removing ourselves from the food system. To me, it's incredibly exciting living in a home that grows all your food. Not only that, it becomes the most exciting food. It can be the most exciting food on the planet. So your big idea is that we ought to be able to grow enough food to feed our families in the houses in which we live using, for example, roof gardens or vertical gardens, but then also cycling back all of the waste, in inverted commas, into the system. Yeah, and it's complex, you know. There's, we need fat-soluble vitamins. We need, it's not as simple as just growing some lettuces and that's what we're going to live on. You need, we need crickets in this system. You need different insects. You need different types of mycelium, mushrooms, aquaponic systems, freshwater mussels, water plants. To achieve a complete diet, I don't use any, very little modern research. All my research comes from people that have studied primitive groups that have lived successfully for thousands of years. Okay, you told me this the other day and you said basically what you're looking at is the writings of a Victorian, I'm not sure, what era writer uh, that was looking at indigenous so diets. Started, so Weston Price was the head of the Dental Association in America and he started to realise that there was something majorly wrong in America and it was at the same time that the Geographic Society was coming back with all these images of healthy populations in Africa and Australia and, you know, Alaska and so he convinced a group to fund a trip, which became, in the end, a 12-year study, in the end, with 50 scientists working and doctors working on it. What sort of era? Started in 1918, finished in 1930. And uh, his work is incredible because it's scientific. You know, there was not just anecdotal, oh, this is what I saw. No, he, he tested the food, brought food back with him and tried to work out what it was. But in the end, he basically worked out that the average, whether you lived in Alaska on the water or whether you lived in the middle of Australia, on average, primitive people had 10 times more fat-soluble vitamins in their diet, crucial vitamins that contain all these micro-elements, you know. So I look back at that and go, well, we can do that today. Why are we filling chemists with little bottles of tiny little capsules of this and that? Like we, 
isolating and that's what we do. You know, we specialise and then focus on one thing. We need to look at the whole picture. So, all right, what are you actually doing? And perhaps I might take you back to, I've mentioned it already, but in 2008 you opened a pop-up restaurant called The Greenhouse in Melbourne. Talk us through that and then how you've evolved to its latest incarnation that's going to be about where you live. So, you know, I was young and naive. Now I'm older and naive. But in 2008, I thought I'll just show people what a building that grows food looks like. So I built a building that was 320 square metres in Federation Square in the heart of Melbourne. And the reason why it was 320 square metres was because that was what the average Australian house was at the time. And I loaded the roof with 120 tonnes of soil just around the perimeter, so it was a usable roof, and we had lots of that different systems. heavy. I'm not good at weight. And it's very heavy, it. but the building heavy. was made from light steel. I designed it so that it was made from recycled steel, and it was totally straw bale, an insulated uh, building. Had vertical gardens of strawberries, and but we grew you know, a huge you grew amount. potatoes? Yeah. Like enough to feed an army? Well, <laughs> it was interesting. We had the ABC recording there, and, well, well, is there something you can dig? And I said, well, let's dig some potatoes. And we started digging potatoes from one bin. They were chip reusable bins that we used and we 34 kilos of potatoes from one square meter how long did it take you to grow them well it was in the middle of summer so eight weeks 12 weeks what else did you do because it's actually amazing we'll share some links you can look at pictures and also just read around some of the innovations and the ones that captured public imagination but you know um well me being me i just decided well we can't generate waste with all the other stuff so i started looking at systems of how do we get wine in kegs so eliminate the bottles for the wine again looking at the system rather than trying to work out what to do with the bottles and so talking to winemakers saying look can you put your wine in a keg and it's like are you serious like branding i lose my branding yeah, they I lose- do it now now it's gone a bit hip you again well it's, it's years everywhere later, now it's, it's so cool yeah but it also encourages discussion and engagement with local wine producers because you're just saying what i mean it's one of my favorite things when we're looking at some of these wicked environmental problems just because we did something a certain way doesn't mean we've got to keep doing it Often there's no common sense behind it. That's right. So, yeah. Um, and we, you we, had we, your milk. Yeah, we had milk on tap and we stone ground our own flour. It was really cool. Everywhere that was generating waste, I'd step back and usually working with producers. And I ended up doing four of those restaurants. And the last one I'm probably most proud of, that was in 2012 for the Food and Wine Festival, where we actually, I imported Swedish toilets and we had twin bowl toilets. And in four weeks, we harvested three and a half thousand litres of urine. We had urine collecting tanks, which then it went on to feed green crops and all sorts of trials. It was trialled as a herbicide and all sorts of experiments that we used with it. Highly illegal, but we kind of just got away with it. <laughs> and just people just thought that. See if anyone notices. <laughs> we had two big tanks at the entrance of the steps, and Don't everybody thought it was water, you know. What anyway, did you do in Brooklyn? That was in November with an absolute legend, Douglas McMaster. And he worked for me at Silo in 2012. Silo is your cafe in yeah, the so CBD we, in Melbourne? Yeah, but, we started um, that in 2012. I was just, right, a cafe without a rubbish bin. So I just thought, take the rubbish bin away, and then there's no excuse. We just have to work everything out, right, down to the caps that the kegs came in. You know, there's a rule around, you, you've got to see that somebody hasn't messed with a keg in oh, transit. Can we just talk off the subject about how annoying it is when you buy a jam jar, they've now started to put a plastic seal around oh the jam God. lid. Why? They didn't used to do that. Again, it's like, it works without that. I know. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) 
So with it, Doug, it drives in me crazy. Brooklyn. Yeah. So Doug came into the last day of the Sydney greenhouse in 2011, and um, we instantly became mates, and we just clicked. And he was he just became obsessed with this idea of zero waste. So he just said, I want to work for you. I want to work on your next project. I want to work with you. So he actually moved down to Melbourne and... He's British, right? Yeah, yeah. So he came down and I said, I'm about to open a zero waste cafe. That was it. He was in. And uh, Doug was the head chef. And I just lost my dad. And uh, it was an incredible uh, time, you know, creative, but also an emotional time for me. And his dad became ill. So Doug had worked with me now probably for a year. And I said, Doug, you've got to go home. Because if something happens to your dad, you're too far away. You know, by the time you, I missed, I was actually in Europe when my dad passed away. So I just, it was really resonated with me that he needed to go back. But at the same time, I was in London a lot because there was a lot of interest in the greenhouse concept and silos. So I was actually, Brighton University wanted me to do a restaurant on their rooftop farm there. So I was in Brighton a lot. And Doug just picked up those connections with the dean of the university. Next thing he's called me, he goes, I found a place in Brighton. And Everyone that... talks about it. I was in London a couple of months ago and went to an amazing fashion event by a label called Gung Ho and everyone was talking about the connection between fashion and food and Silo and Doug were what it was everyone's obsessed with it. Yeah. They're opening a big new place in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So saying that Doug struggled the first two or three years. I mean every week we'd have a call. So once a week I go into Melbourne still and do installations which four AM, so four AM phone call with Doug. For an hour, we talk about, you know, how hard it is because I kind of shield people that I work with from the bullshit and the difficulty in trying to get stuff done. So Doug, You mean from a regulatory standpoint yeah, or just yeah. attitudes of consumers? I don't, I don't want to dissuade people from trying to do something different. Doug and I got back together in uh, November and we did a zero waste pop-up dinner in Brooklyn where all the produce was grown by Brooklyn Grange. Ben did a, an amazing job and... Um, yeah, that was so much fun. Is that why the New York Times called you the poster boy for zero waste living? No, that was a few years earlier. Put that on your business cards. It's awesome. So Silo, Doug left. I closed Silo because I felt we'd achieve what we wanted to achieve. And also, I'm always coming up with new concepts. So again, goes back to this idea of if you want to make a business successful, you've got to you know keep doing it. But no, I decided I had this idea to create a restaurant and just source all the food for it from the waste from other restaurants. So I started going to Attica and Rockpool and collecting their waste and we started a restaurant called Brothel. And the New York Times came, flew uh, David Pryor over and he spent a week in Melbourne and went with me on the run and wrote a beautiful article about it. And that article was read by Dan Barber and from Blue Hill in New York and uh, Adam Kay, his head chef, they came up with the concept Wasted, which was... Four weeks after it was in the New York Times, he was actually in Melbourne for the Food and Wine Festival and we met and he said, you've got to come to Wasted in New York because it was inspired by brothel. What is it about the food space that allows these ideas to catch fire? Well, it's primal. Food is primal, like flowers, you know. So we love the smell, the texture, the taste, the sight of food. And it's, um, I think it, it, that's why we're so obsessed with it. You know, that's why there's so many Instagram photos of food. That's why there's such an obsession around chefs and everyone says, oh, you know, this is going to die out. I don't think so because um, people are looking for more and that's why I think that the next revolution will be growing your own because every great chef gets to a point where they realise I've done as much as I can. I need to know how this stuff is grown because that's the only way I can improve it. So then you start 
getting into that space. And that, you know, in 2008, there wasn't a lot of interest in that really, but that's the next big thing. 40% of the food that is grown does not leave the farm. The system is so completely fucked up, it is beyond... Wasted because it's damaged or it doesn't look right? Doesn't have the right criteria or, you know, the plants produce... What plants do, you know? They yield stuff and we can't get enough people to pick the stuff. So it just rots on the ground or a storm comes or, you know, there's... Or the bottom falls out of a market. I mean, you read about that. It's yeah. not the price isn't there, so bugger the sugar cane. Exactly. Leave it in the field exactly. to rot. And the amount of energy, the miles, the nutrient loss, the fact that we're growing this food on on soils that aren't properly nourished. I mean, it's, it goes on and on and on. And then what it does to us. So there's all these romantic stories about the countryside 50, 60 years ago. Well, that was my dad speaks very fondly of that time because you had hundreds of people that were in a community that were growing food because they were all doing that today you've got one guy sitting on a tractor doing 2,000 acres of wheat there's nothing social about this this is the same problem in America Holland and let's I mean biodiversity is just gone from those fields they're all monocultures there's a wonderful book I'm just going to mention it there's a really excellent book that my stepdad sent me. It's by John Louis Stemple, who's a nature writer for The Times, and it's called The Running Hare. And it's about what happens when one man decides to rewild an acre of field. And he describes the seasons and what happens when the hedgerows come back in. The whole thing He's looking to bring a hare back into the field. But God, you read it. I mean, you, everyone should read it. You just realise what we've lost by this whole monoculture thing. No and, hedgerows, you know- no... But it's not just monoculture in food. It's why I, in my buildings I do not use conventional timber, FSC certified timber, because it's a monoculture. It's no different to you walk into a forest of millions of trees that are exactly the same age, planted the exact same distance apart. You won't find birds. You won't find any noise. You step out of one of those forests onto the edge of the forest or there might be some old growth forest. Suddenly you're surrounded by the noise of birds and animals it's no different to a field of corn. Actually, field of corn is better than an FSC-certified forest because it's only a very short season. You know, Yoast, people are listening to this are going to feel upset about this because we presume that FSC is best practice and something we can feel good about. Well... You don't care if we're upset. You didn't I, want us to I'm sorry. It. You've yeah. just got to be realistic about yeah. this stuff, you know, and it's, I say this to all the people that I work with and I've worked with in the past, question everything. Don't just assume that something because somebody says something I don't believe it I, you've got to step back and look at what it is you know and and see it for what it is and the only conclusion that I can come to and a food system where we live is so incredibly exciting and it's you know it has the ability to completely change the way our cities function and work and it has the ability to completely open up space for rewilding okay I want to end by giving you some space to describe your future vision of how we might do things differently, growing our own food, where we live, and all the knock-on effects that could have. Well, some of the work that I read from primitive tribes that were visited by pioneers or people that visited, doctors that visited, you know, I'm reading something at the moment that was written in 1840, that most of them describe that there's between 300 and 600 different types of food that most primitive people ate. They weren't relied on three or four different foods. You know, the foods changed with the seasons and there was a lot of diversity. I see in as little as 10 years' time our suburbs and our, our homes being designed not only externally but internally with you know, the incredible technology around LED lighting and you know, the marijuana growers 
all over the world are already 10 years ahead of this stuff. They're growing some of the best marijuana that's ever been grown in the roof of a building or in a bedroom. That technology we can use to grow lots of food where to we live. To bring sunlight into our spaces or artificial yeah, sunlight. artificial sunlight. And these lights use no energy, you know. So this is not something for people that can afford to have a sun-drenched block. I want to create, show that there's systems that can be implemented in the tiniest apartments anywhere in the world and by doing that, you're also introducing a microflora into your indoor air environment that has the ability to totally change the way you think. We now know that the microflora in healthy soil can increase serotonin faster than doing a line of cocaine. You know, we need to understand that serotonin... What? Absolutely. There's a mycobacterium vaceae is a soil bacteria that exists in healthy soil. It has a correlation between mycelium. So disturbed soils don't really contain this bacteria. Mycelium can't be disturbed for it to grow. It's got a structure. So it, it tends to be in forests and places with undisturbed soil. It's like this when people bacteria, go forest bathing. That's a thing now, yeah. isn't it? To be, it's the feeling, not just the act of being in nature that changes the way we react to everything around us, but also how we feel inside. Yeah, and, and the air that you breathe changes the microflora in your body. You breathe that in, your, your gut bacteria change. Your, your whole way of seeing the world changes. And we've got to be living in our food system. That's the only way forward. So you're growing food inside. You're changing the way that light works. You're thinking about how a space feels and operates for you, but also those around you. But tell us just finally about the food. You're growing it on the roof. Well, guess what? When food is grown in nutrient-dense soil and it's in season, it tastes so much better. So if flavor is where we're at, even if you forget about all the other stuff, if you want the best tasting food, then you've got to grow food in season and in nutrient-dense soil. In your future scenario, are we teaching kids in school how to yeah. garden? Are we having workshops in the community? Are we, I don't know, is part of the single universal basic income is part of that that you have to do a certain amount of gardening in your community? Like, what do you see in the future? It's already happening here in Australia with kitchen gardens. My kids go to a school that's got a kitchen garden in a kitchen. You plant a seed, you watch it grow, you harvest it, you cook it into food. That is so powerful. And I do it as often as I can. I help as a parent. And seeing kids from grade one to grade five, like my daughter Remy, is always cooking. She knows what the difference is between oregano and margarine. You know, most people can't even tell the difference between those two things or Italian parsley and, and celery at a young stage because it's, it's part of the school. And I find that so liberating to know that it can be turned around so quickly and easily. And yeah, it just makes life so much richer. You know, you, there's so much, you, you become aware of the seasons, you become aware of the temperature changes. We're currently li living so isolated from the natural world. As soon as you start to grow your own food, you become connected. All right, finally, what needs to happen to enable this revolution? Well, there's no point waiting for governments to do anything because that'll never happen because governments always follow. So it's just about us saying this is what we're doing and doing it. And it's already happening. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better music is by Montaigne she recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you